This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. All right, this is a good one because we've had a lot of discussion about this this morning. You probably had this at home too. You might have heard in the news this week, the Australian airline Qantas has completed the world's longest passenger flight by a commercial airline. It went from London, England to Sydney, Australia. That's 17,800 kilometers. How long did this flight last? 19 hours and 19 minutes. That's nuts. Robert Penfold is a reporter for Australia's Nine News, and he was on board that flight. Runway 163, clear to land. Touchdown in Sydney, 19 hours and 16 minutes after takeoff from New York. The end of a marathon and a record-breaking flight. Qantas able to achieve this with a new Dreamliner only because there were just 50 people on board. It is the last frontier in aviation. Qantas boss Alan Joyce expects new aircraft by Boeing and Airbus will be ready to make this trip a reality within four years. Qantas is also using this as a bit of a research flight on how to beat jet lag so they've actually adjusted all the lighting in the cabin here and also the meal times to Australian East Coast time. And although we've just left New York, it's late at night, they've just told us here on the plane, we're about to have lunch. Six Qantas frequent flyers turned human guinea pigs were asked to join the trip. And for a free business class flight, they agreed to take alertness tests, to eat lighter style food, to cut back on the wine, and turn up three times at the back of the plane to stretch and squat. Uh, that first eight hours seemed to go very, very quickly because there was always activity and after doing it each time, um, you did feel refreshed. Greg Roberts, who says he's done the New York trip at least a hundred times, said the different flying conditions made this the best ever. I don't think I can ever remember being this fresh after towards the end of the, uh, the journey, after a sleep. It's amazing. Alan Joyce sees non-stop flights boosting tourism numbers in Australia. A lot of people think Australia is too far away and it's too awkward to get there. Making that easier with avoiding the stop, you can go direct to your destination, will be a huge uplift for tourism we believe as well. So what about economy flyers? Well, On these longer flights, Mr Joyce is now talking about bigger seats and after this experience he seriously is considering a dedicated stretching area. Robert Penfold, Nine News. That sounds like torture to me, is what that sounds like. 19 hours and 19 minutes. And by the way, the flight landed more than half an hour late. So really, it turned out to be more closer to 20 hours on board that airplane. So this is experimental research that Qantas is doing. But they have been doing these flights more and more, bringing people on board to see what it's going to be like. They saw two sunrises. How weird is that on board the airplane? So for our hot question of the day today, we want to know... Could you do it? Would you take a 19 plus hour nonstop economy class flight? Do you go, yeah, it's efficient. I would totally do it. Or do you think, no, that sounds like torture. That sounds like hell because that's the, that's my answer for this thing. Uh, listen, go online, check it out. You'll find it at CKNW or at Simi Sarah 980. You can email me, Simi at CKNW.com or call our buzz line 604-331-2899. So this is about the third or fourth flight that Qantas has done. And they're trying to figure out if this is something that people will start buying 
tickets for. So this, they're not, it's not service paying passengers yet, but they hope to make it a part of their regular schedule by 2022 or 2023. And they're trying to convince, I guess, aviation officials that pilots and cabin crew and even passengers could cope with 22 hours in the air without a break. That sounds like a nightmare to me, honestly. Like, you would have to give me a sleeping pill and knock me out in order for me to make that even somewhat palatable. We're talking economy class here. So that's a question. Would you take a 19-hour nonstop economy class flight? Weigh in with your thoughts on this one. I would love to hear people think they can actually pull this thing off. We've just got a couple of dozen votes already. I'm just taking a look at them, and it makes me laugh because 81% of people right now have chosen the know that sounds like hell option. So I'm glad to see there's some people out there who agree with me. We had a very feisty debate about this at morning this morning here at work where many people who said like, yeah, they're, like Dwayne, our producer said he could do it. No problem. I personally think he's crazy. How about you? Could you do it? Go online, cast your vote at CKNW or even email me, simmy at cknw.com. And if you have a secret, and I wasn't kidding when I talked about this with Claire, I used to have no problem on flights. She's just a baby. She's 31. But as you get older, and I'm in my late 40s, it gets harder and harder on those flights. What is your secret for those long-haul flights? How do you do it? You can call our buzz line too, 604-331-BUZZ. That's 331-2899. And do check out our hot question of the day. Well, let's talk about housing. Before you bought your first home, were you a renter? Maybe you still are a renter hoping to get that first home. And you know, who'd you rent from? There's some interesting results from a new survey done by Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation. It's their annual mortgage consumer survey. So some of the stats in there, well, the number of first-time homebuyers who rented from family or friends before buying a home went way up this year from 28% in 2018 to 44% in 2019. Here's something else that I thought was interesting. The number of buyers who spent the absolute maximum that they could afford when they bought a house, that was 60% of home buyers in 2019, but that's way down from the 78% who were maxing themselves out to buy a house back in 2018. So what does all of this tell us about the market today in Canada? Let's get it translated for us. Joining us now, Andrea Sabatini, Senior Client Relations Representative at Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation. Andrea, thank you for being here. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. How are you today? I'm good, thank you. This paints a really interesting picture of home ownership in Canada. What do you think it tells us? Well, uh, I mean, from what uh, our data is uh, telling us, affordability is definitely top of mind for Canadians uh, who we surveyed. Uh, 80% of Canadians said to us that finding a home that they could afford was a necessity. And that was a slight increase over 2018. Okay, but the people who are buying a house, they clearly aren't maxing themselves out as much as they used to. You're right, they're not. That uh, has definitely, uh, there's a difference in percentage from uh, one year to the other from uh, 2018. Uh, It showed that 78% of Canadians spent their maximum that they could really afford. um, And that actually fell to 60% in 2019. So really some of the trends that we saw was a dramatic decrease in the number of homebuyers who choose to spend the maximum they could actually afford on their home. So our survey response really suggests that Canadians are 
are really shying away from the house-rich, cash-poor approach of the past years. Location, location, location is not top of mind for buyers uh, because, number one, price affordability uh, is, is where it's at. It is a necessity uh, uh, for home buyers. Do you think that also indicates that perhaps prices have come down a little bit, therefore putting more putting that into reach for more people? Oh, for sure. I mean, like, you know, uh, across the country, uh, uh, since uh, 2017, we have seen some markets uh, where prices did drop. Uh, and this, uh, you know, did give an opportunity uh, for home buyers to really get back into the marketplace. But I mean, just going back to what our survey says, Canadians are making more frugal choices when it comes to homeownership decisions. Okay, what does this tell us about renters as well? Yeah, for sure. So, you know what, the percentage of uh, first-time home buyers who rented for the past 10 years, um, you know, they're, they're staying at home or they're living with family and friends or, you know, they're, they're choosing to rent before buying. And and that what that's really telling us is that, um, you know, it, it, there are some, you know, obviously affordability down pressures uh, in the marketplace. Uh, you know, um, we recognize that uh, uh, the debt level concerns has been uh, increasing and and reaching peak levels over the years. So, um, you know, that being said, uh, Canadians are opting out on renting uh, before making that huge choice uh, of Hmm. buying a home. So they're staying, would you say, like they're staying home then? They're staying like with family perhaps for longer periods of time? They are, yes. From the buyers that we... uh, 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 that we surveyed, they are staying home with family and friends. And that did increase uh, uh, from last year's survey. So it was 28% in 2018, and in 2019, it was 44%. Oh, that's a big jump. Okay. And it is, yes. Now, when people do buy a home, though, it looks like your survey was also asking them about, like, did they cut back on other items in order to afford that home? You know what? That's a great question, and they did. So what we what we've noted from our survey is that uh, Canadians are, you know, cutting back on uh, on going out and eating at restaurants or taking those uh, vacations. So people are definitely cutting back on their expenditures, uh, and and again, you know, they're being mindful uh, of the affordability uh, because it is top of mind for them. And so for those who are looking to purchase a home, you know, we've also noted that. Um, you know, only uh, a certain percentage and 33% of buyers, they didn't have a monthly budget in place. Uh, really? So this would be an effective tool for them, really, for home buyers to have a strong financial budget in place so they know what they can manage and afford uh, should they be ready to go out and purchase a home. All right. Interesting stats. Andrea, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Have a great day. You too. That's Andrea Sabatini, Senior Client Relations Representative at Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation. Let's talk more about the vaping situation. So in Quebec, in that province, their health department is confirming that province's third case of severe lung illness that is related to vaping. They're saying the person who fell ill consumed a legal nicotine vaping product, as did the other two Quebecers, those cases that they've counted, both from Montreal, and they believe they developed severe lung illness related to vaping. This is not the first time we've heard this, right? Federal health authorities have reported an additional five probable cases of this severe lung illness right across the country, two in New Brunswick, three here in B.C., Now, all of this, of course, comes right after our provincial government announced plans to make B.C. the first province 
to crack down on vaping with regulations, including things like hiking the tax on vaping products, the PST, from 7% to 20%. There is some resistance to that, as you might expect. It's I would. It's not easy for any industry to go from, you know, no regulations to this really heightened amount of regulations. Uh, we've heard from uh, one Vancouver vape shop owner who says the tax meant to deter teenagers may discourage adult customers as well, but health officials believe this is the way to go, that this is a necessary step to help combat this problem. Now, we thought we would check in with Dr. Bonnie Henry, the provincial health officer here in BC, to get her thoughts on these vaping regulations and what they mean, and she joined us earlier. Dr. Henry, thank you for joining us to talk about this today. First off, let's talk about these vaping-related illnesses. Have we heard of any more cases here in BC? We have one or two more that are under investigation, but uh, so far we have only three that have met our probable case definition. Okay, and what does that mean? When we think that there is a vaping-related illness, what does that look like? What does that mean? Right, so what we're doing is investigating um, the more severe cases to try and understand what might be causing this. So we have very strict case definitions, we call them. So it's not everybody who has a reaction to vaping, which... um, you know, there's quite a few people who have reported to us that they've had some uh, effects that are probably related to vaping. But what we want to do is be really specific so that we can um, use it as part of the ongoing investigation, both in the U.S. and Canada, to try and understand what is actually causing these illnesses. Right. Have you been monitoring kind of what's going on in the United States? Absolutely, and uh, we've been uh, we have a group across Canada that's connecting very closely with the U.S. CDC and making sure that we're we're up to date on the latest and what's um, what might be causing this. So, what did you think then about the announcement yesterday from the provincial government about what they plan to do to regulate vaping in BC? I, I think this is fantastic, and I, I'm very supportive of the initiative that we're taking. So I think it's a, a separate related issue to um, the severe illnesses we're seeing, which are still quite rare. But the biggest concerning thing for me around vaping is is the um, increased use in, uh, by young people and the, the potential for nicotine addiction that we just don't need. What has happened in the last couple of years then? Because we, this seems to be this problem that kind of really exploded in the last year or two. It, it did absolutely explode in um, pretty much from 2017, 2018, in the last two years. And a couple of things, I think, uh, are driving that. One is the development of the products. And we now have on the market these products that have very high concentrations of nicotine, and they developed a new formulation of nicotine salts, which makes them easier on the, uh, apparently easier, less irritating to, to use and very high, con- allowing them to be in very high concentrations. And we know that nicotine is very addictive and that they have been very aggressively marketed, particularly um, the flavored versions um, and, and clearly marketing to, to young people, which is, uh, which is very concerning. I know there's some concerns as well, though, by cracking down in this way, though, are we at all concerned that we're impacting adults who might want to transition away from actually smoking cigarettes? Yeah, I don't actually think. And some of the um, evidence that we're seeing is that people are using both and they're not using them as a smoking cessation device, but they're using them um, in areas where they can't smoke. So I think we need to um, restrict 
how we where these are available and make them available for, uh, for adults who want to quit smoking. And it needs to be a, an abstinence thing. So you need to get off the cigarettes, and that reduces your risk. And we know that they are probably um, less harmful than smoking cigarettes, but they're not innocuous in and of themselves. And so we really want to make sure is that younger people aren't taking up vaping um, for just and becoming addicted to nicotine. So that's the the balance that we have to find um, between those things. And do you think those measures that we heard about yesterday, will that help combat youth vaping? I I think it will. It's going to take some time. Um, I think it makes the products available for adults who are quitting smoking, and it has supports as well. We are looking at supports for young people who want to get off the vaping. And really, that's the message that we need to think about. If you don't smoke, don't vape. <laughs> and if you're are a smoker, then vaping may be uh, an, an aid to help you stop cigarette smoking, which is a good thing. But they need to be restricted, and it should be in the way that um, that other smoking cessation aids are available for people. Right. It's, a, it's amazing. I, I the yeah. other thing that's, oh, sorry, that, that I think is really helpful is we're going to um, be looking at youth to develop the, the tools, both for education, but we know education is not enough, but to be able to to talk to for young people to talk to young people about vaping and about what the risks are and why they should um, avoid taking up vaping in the first place. And we know that um, youth talking to youth is much more impactful than uh, than adults trying to tell them just don't do it. As a health official, this must also be kind of fascinating to observe, right, from an academic standpoint as well. Because we thought we had made cigarette smoking kind of socially unacceptable, and then this came out of nowhere and seems to have taken over completely in the span of a couple of years. Absolutely. And uh, we, um, the Council of Chief Medical Officers of Health, so my counterparts across the country, and, and we put out a notice warning people that this was coming uh, a number of years ago and a couple since. And we really, it, it's been very frustrating and uh, it's, it's uh, worrisome that we've in some ways, miss the boat, and we are finally taking some actions. And I need—I I do believe the federal government needs to take actions as well, because much of this is under their their purview. So it's better late than never. But uh, we definitely need to to continue to put in measures to to stop the marketing to young people and to make it again um, try and gain back those losses that we had from cigarettes. Do you think there was something that a couple of years ago we could have done that maybe might have tamped down some of these numbers? Well, if we look at um, England and the UK and Europe, for example, they um, they took some measures early on to uh, decrease the amount of, of nicotine that's available in products, to decrease the availability in the marketing, and they have not seen that increase um, quite as dramatically as we have, particularly in youth. So, um, it's better late than ever, but I do think these are important measures to take now. Right. So if you think these, when do you think these will start to have an impact? Will you be watching the numbers over the next year or so? Yes, absolutely. We'll continue to watch them. I think the, you know, the, what we were talking about earlier, um, the, the se- severe vaping related illnesses have triggered people's awareness that these are not innocuous. And I, and there was a lot of push from the, the manufacturers to say that these are good things and that they're, you know, it's okay that they're safe, but um, clearly they're not. And we need to continue to monitor them. All right, Dr. Henry, thank you for your time. 
Thank you. It's Dr. Bonnie Henry, the Provincial Health Officer here in BC, talking about the new vaping regulations and the impact that she hopes they will have in getting people to cut back on vaping. We had asked Adrian Dix, the health minister, when he was on with us yesterday, like, what about online products? Because a lot of people emailed to say, yeah, but you know, people buy this stuff online and a lot of this isn't going to apply there. Well, that's where the federal government comes in, which is what he told us. He said that's why they're hoping to get the federal government on board for something that will deal with interprovincial trade areas. And that's why they said they need the feds to come in and help them out with kind of broadening the scope and span of these vaping regulations. Now, I had an email here from Christine who said, I was about 16 when I wanted to feel part of the group, she says. I'm now 76. She said, I even found a girl in my class who smoked and asked her to teach me how to do it. She said, we started with menthol cigarettes, then onto Rothman. She said, I smoked for 15 years. And then I quit when the price of a package cost more than 50 cents, she said. So the price got to be, and 50 cents, like how long ago was that, right? She said that got to be too much. And then she said she was watching the news last night, and she sees the same thing happening now, where she believes that kids are kind of learning how to vape by watching older people do this all the time. And she said it's bad for the lungs. She wants to know, how did Health Canada even allow these products to come onto the market? Well, Christine, that is the big question, right? The cat's kind of out of the barn on this, and we're trying to put it back in, but we'll see how this works. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. Use our buzz line 604-331-2899. Let's get an update now on the transit situation out there. The two sides, of course, walked away from the table yesterday. We were talking about that actually at this time yesterday, and we knew that meant an escalation in the labor dispute between bus drivers and C-bus maintenance workers and uh, Coast Mountain Bus Company. So that meant that today bus drivers were going to be refusing overtime, and they said that could impact 10 to 15 of the bus routes out there. So you could probably expect some delays on buses and SkyTrain might be more busy than usual today. We thought, let's take a look at how things are going right now. What are the alerts? Uh, What do we need to know? Joining us now is TransLink spokesperson, Jill Drews. Jill, thank you very much for being here. Good morning. How is the system working right now? Well, we are seeing a slight reduction in service, about 10%, and particularly in the Vancouver area. That's due to buses being unavailable um, because they need to be maintained and because of operator unavailability due to the overtime ban. All right, so do we expect some concerns heading into the afternoon? CNBC is doing everything it can to look at what it has to work with and make some rearrangements. It's constantly happening. So it's really unpredictable, but we can likely expect there will be a sort of similar pattern of delays or cancellations. So does that mean like longer time between buses or some routes impacted more than other routes? Right, it would mean a longer time. Um, One of the tools that CNBC has at its disposal is it's able to take buses from more frequent routes and move them to less frequent routes. So at least for customers who are taking a bus on a less frequent route, it doesn't mean that they're waiting for a half an hour or anything for a bus. We want to keep those buses running. So if it's like a more frequent route, then you may be waiting an extra couple of minutes. Right. So at least with the frequent routes, you won't be waiting for a long period of time. Another bus will be coming as soon as possible. Okay, so Jill, that's for today. And today is day one, but this is apparently also going to happen Monday, Wednesday, Friday next week. Do we expect this to snowball? 
The operator uh, overtime ban would probably be consistent. Um, we uh, have the same amount of overtime usually built into the system, so I would expect similar conditions on Monday. Um, it could be more of an issue with the maintenance overtime ban as more buses require maintenance and aren't getting it done. Yeah, how does that work then? How often does a bus need maintenance and what, what would that do to the schedule? Well, the way it's been working is um, an operator will do a pre-trip inspection of the bus. They may flag an issue for maintenance, and then that bus kind of goes in a pile. It needs to be inspected by maintenance before it can be roadworthy. We don't know um, at the beginning of the day how many buses will be out for this reason because that inspection happens in the morning. So then it's up to our planners and the folks at CNBC to rearrange the deck chairs, as it were, and try to get as much service out as possible. Right. So you're saying that's where the lineup could end up being? That, That could impact the service? It's hard to say. We're managing all right right now um, with just a 10% or so reduction in service. I mean, any reduction in service is unacceptable to us, but we're doing the best we can to maintain um, a fairly consistent level. So where should people go for more information? Well, the best advice I can give customers is to please sign up for transit alerts. It's an automated system. You can sign up for the uh, route that you usually take, and we will let you know proactively if there's an issue on your route. There's a lot of uh, alerts this morning. Is that way above normal? Um, this is probably a more um, more cancellations than we would see on a regular day, that's for sure. But um, CNBC is dealing with uh, um, some fairly severe issues when it comes to losing these buses and losing these manpower hours from um, operators refusing the overtime. All right, Jill, thank you very much for your time. No problem. Bye. That is Jill Drews, a TransLink spokesperson, talking about how things are moving on the system today. So your best bet, if you do rely on buses and transit to get to and from work or wherever it is that you're going, is to sign up for those transit alerts, as she mentioned there. There's a couple of hundred of them this morning. Uh, So yeah, there are buses that are affected, but as you heard them say, it's more like longer gaps. If you're used to waiting three minutes or four minutes, five minutes, say, if you're on one of the busier routes like Broadway, you'll probably be waiting a couple of minutes longer uh, just because they don't have as many buses in circulation with this overtime ban. Well, you know, sometimes we can go like months without talking to Reggie Giacchini down in Washington, D.C., and then sometimes things happen, and it was like we have to talk to him every day. That's pretty much how this week has gone, especially with the news this morning. The longtime friend and ally of President Donald Trump, Roger Stone, may spend 20 years in prison. He was found guilty this morning on all counts of lying to Congress and witness tampering at his trial in federal court in Washington, D.C. He was charged in an indictment that alleged he lied to lawmakers about his contact with WikiLeaks, that he tampered with witnesses and obstructed a House Intelligence Committee probe. Let's get more on this and what else is going on now with the help of Reggie Giacchini, our Global News Radio producer in Washington, D.C. Hi, Reggie. Hello. Okay, so here we are again talking to you because it's been busy in Washington, D.C. this week. How damaging is this Roger Stone case, do you think, to the president? Uh, I think it's fairly damaging. I mean, first and foremost, this is a big win for Robert Mueller. This is now the fifth person who has faced charges uh, linked to investigations that branched off of the initial 2016 election meddling probe that he undertook, uh, which ultimately determined uh, determined that Russia had interfered. Uh, But I think that this is a big deal for the president, because remember, the president issued written answers to Robert Mueller simply saying that he had never been uh, in conversation with, uh, with Roger Stone about 
about WikiLeaks. He said he couldn't recall any discussions about those hacked emails. Uh, and here we now have a jury finding Roger Stone guilty uh, for not only lying to Congress about that, but also of obstruction. So, you know, politically, uh, you know, this is going to be another uh, kind of damaging blow to President Trump's, uh, you know, tenure in Washington and uh, ultimately will be something that, you know, historians look back on with question. Right, because this was somebody who now, I guess, away from when he was asked by law enforcement, was admitting to being a conduit to WikiLeaks. Uh, yeah, I mean, look, Roger, Roger Stone has always been a questionable character, a questionable political operative, uh, you know, and he's had close ties with the president. He ultimately said that, you know, he felt no need to cover for the president when he was testifying before Congress because he said the president had already won and there was nothing uh, that he needed to cover for him for. Uh, the problem being that he was lying as he was talking and, you know, he, he was having these uh, or, it's, you know, we've now found out that a jury believes that he was having these conversations with WikiLeaks and passing information along about these uh, hacked Democrats servers and the ultimate dumps of these emails in 2016 that did benefit uh, Donald Trump. So, you know, we know that this was uh, a key operating player in the campaign for Donald Trump, much like, uh, you know, the five others that are ultimately serving some kind of uh, jail sentence or have served a sentence for their parts as well. Right. And that's not even everything that was going on today, right? Because that's the hearings into impeachment that were happening. uh, That was completely different. Uh, absolutely it was. And I mean, the, the Roger Stone thing kind of came down at the most opportune time because House members had just recessed the hearing so they could go deal with uh, matters of voting on the House floor. And within minutes, uh, the news came down of Roger Stone. So it was kind of a nonstop political firestorm for a couple of hours earlier today. Uh, this hearing uh, with uh, the former ambassador, Marie Ivanovich, literally just wrapping up right now uh, as we speak, the cameras are watching her walk out of the room. Uh, and ultimately, I think that her testimony today is going to be something the Democrats try to use to uh, better solidify the ground underneath them as they push forward with impeachment. Republicans, as they did a couple of days ago, really had a hard time trying to grasp control uh, and make sense of their questioning. So what was so significant about her testimony today? Well, I mean, look, this is a career diplomat. She was one of the highest ranking uh, foreign service members in the United States. She had been in six different posts over 33 years. She was in uh, Ukraine for three years before she was ousted. And she talked about uh, the dismay about being uh, taken from her post so quickly and brought a sense of fear to the room when she was saying that she was uh, at an event that was honoring anti-corruption and giving the Woman of Courage Award. Uh, And at one o'clock that morning, she received a phone call from someone in the State Department basically saying uh, there's a potential security risk right now. Get on the next plane and get out of, uh, of Kiev. And she ultimately left, felt, had no idea why she was leaving. And, and you could tell uh, the kind of terror and, and, and confusion mm. that remains in her head uh, as she still tries to ponder why a smear campaign was essentially started on her uh, by both the president and Rudy Giuliani. And what happened even while she was testifying, the president weighed in with some tweeting. What was that all about? Well, I mean, look, the president's press secretary, uh, Stephanie Grisham, earlier today said he was only going to be watching uh, Dev- uh, ranking member Devin Nunes's opening statements and then would be continuing his work, quote unquote, with the American people or for the American people. But it only took about 25 minutes into the impeachment uh, hearing to start that President Trump tweeted that anywhere Marie Ivanovich went uh, was it turned bad, noting her uh, you know posts in Somalia as the past and said that he she serves at the pleasure of him. Uh, and, you know, while that's true. The fact that he was tweeting about this witness in the middle of her testimony uh, 
instantly sat in the eyes of some Democrats um, as a potential witness intimidation. And ultimately, according to even the people on Fox News, that is something that could be used to draft an article of impeachment. So the president put Twitter at his fingertips at an inopportune time and ultimately damaged what the Republicans were trying to do to defend him. Oof, ouch. Okay, and I like the way you added that. Even the people on Fox News thought this was potentially witness intimidation. Well, I mean, look, Fox News has very much, uh, you know, been side by side with President Trump. It's basically like an extension of the White House at times. Uh, but there are a key number of people that are on that network outside of the primetime hosts that oftentimes will call things as they see it. And, and their host, Brett Baer, who's not a fan of the president and the president doesn't like him very much, uh, but does have a solid background, uh, said, look, the, the Democrats could use this to draft an article of impeachment because it's considered witness intimidation. So if they decide to go down that route, they now have House Speaker Nancy Pelosi saying bribery potentially witness uh, intimidation. Uh, They're kind of putting additional eggs into a basket they thought would only carry a dozen. Okay, so what happens next? What, like, is there more coming next week? We actually have uh, additional testimony today uh, behind closed doors, and that's going to be from the staff member who overheard this new phone call between President Trump and the uh, European Union ambassador. took place in a Kiev restaurant the day after the Zelensky phone call. It was overheard by a number of people. There are fears uh, in the national security world that, you know, someone like Russia, someone like China could have been tuned into that conversation as well. That person's testifying behind closed doors. An actual White House administration member is going to now testify behind closed doors on Saturday, Uh, who has ties to Mick Mulvaney, whose hands are tied into this Ukraine story. And then next week, we have Colonel Vindman testifying. We have Ambassador Sondland testifying. We have people from the vice president's office uh, uh, starting to testify. So this, you know, what felt like a slower start to uh, impeachment hearings very well could become a bright fireworks show by next Tuesday. All right, Reggie, I'm sure we'll be talking to you again. Thank you. Happy weekend. That is Reggie Cicchini, Global News Radio producer in Washington, D.C., covering all of, and there's a lot, of the goings-on in Washington today. Well, today we're talking about electric vehicles. Right across the country, 3.5% of all car sales are electric vehicles. And those are numbers that have been released from Electric Mobility Canada. In BC, though, that number is more like 10% of all vehicles sold. We are far and away the province that sells the most electric vehicles. In fact, coming in second is the province of Quebec, and that's at 7% of all vehicles there. Now, we have, of course, had a lot of incentives here in BC in the last couple of years to, to buy electric vehicles. Those rebates that were provided were giving people a huge discount to the point where the provincial program actually ran out of money and they had to top it up to help people who still wanted to get this. So let's talk more about the popularity of electric vehicles. What makes them more popular in BC? Was it just the rebate or was there something else at play here as well? Joining us now is Al Cormier, the founder of Electric Mobility Canada. That's a national industry association that promotes the electrification of transport in Canada. Al, thank you very much for joining us. Good afternoon. So do these BC numbers surprise you? No, they delight me. They don't surprise me. I expected this to happen. Things are happening well in BC for a variety of reasons. And what are some of those reasons? Like, why do you think it's so popular here in BC? Well, I think we have uh, a population that is more sensitized to the climate change issues. We've had uh, strong sales of electric vehicles in BC for several years now. We have strong financial incentives of 
from the provincial government, as well as some uh, long-term policies and programs uh, promoting zero-emission vehicles at the provincial level. And then this year, when the federal incentive for federal government incentive kicked in as well, it made it very, very nice for BC people to buy electric vehicles, and uh, we're seeing the results. And do you think the high gas prices here on the West Coast also play into that? Definitely. And, of course, the, uh, the fact that you also have most of your electricity is uh, from renewable sources. So it's very clean electricity, high gas prices, uh, fuel and in- uh, financial incentives from provincial and federal governments, all of these things uh, that's the right formula for BC at this time. Yeah. So can that even be replicated then in another province, Al, or is this just going to be something that is unique to BC? Uh, it's, uh, it's almost the same in Quebec. Quebec also has very clean uh, hydro, and they have a provincial support as well, financial support, and they're just behind BC by a couple of percentage points. So BC is in the lead, Quebec is next, and, and Ontario is third, yeah. So do you see that changing in the next couple of years as well, like perhaps more people buying in? Because there's a lot more models coming on the market, aren't there? Definitely. There's well over 40 models available now in the market. And I see more positive policy changes because in the last federal election, uh, we just had well over two-thirds of Canadians supporting uh, climate change as an issue. And, of course, transportation continues to be a big contribution contributor to greenhouse gases, so converting electric cars to electric will certainly help in that way, and I suspect that the current federal government, in partnership with opposition parties, will come up with even more supportive policies to promote electric cars across Canada. Not only just making the cars available, but we need the charging infrastructure as well, uh, along the highways and cities and, and in private homes and commercial places so that a lot of that is happening yeah. we have national institutions like Canadian Tire and Petro Canada installing uh, charging stations at their facilities so uh, we've passed the tipping point we're on the right trend. But do you think does it still require incentives do you think to get some people into an electric vehicle? Uh, for a little while yet yes because the, the price of electric vehicle is still a little higher than conventional vehicles, although over the life cycle of the vehicle, if you calculate, you know, over the, whether you keep it for four or five years or so, the total economics, because you're not buying gas anymore, are better, but up front, it's a little more expensive. That's why we need that incentive for a while. And of course, the price of uh, batteries has gone down considerably in recent years and continues to go down, and that's one of the biggest cost items in the electric vehicle. As you get more of them on the, uh, sold, uh, the price per unit goes down. So it is expected that perhaps in three to four years, there will be no difference in price between a regular vehicle and an electric vehicle. Right. Is that the key, do you think? I hear this from people all the time, Al, is that, oh, they're waiting. Like, they don't want to be one of the early adopters. They really want this thing to become, like, totally mainstream before they buy in. Yeah, well, that's usually the stages things go through. You get the early adopters, and, and they're motivated by reasons other than economics. The rest of them wait for the economics to get a little better. But they've been around now for well over 10 years. Um, most of them 
still have their original batteries. Uh, people expect that batteries will fail within a couple of years. That's just not so. And those that have it are enjoying economies by not having to purchase gas. And, and of course, so, they don't produce emissions as well. So, so over the next thing. couple of years, then, how do you expect this to change? Just continue to go upwards uh, because the uh, price of gasoline tend to keep going up and uh, the price of batteries keep going down. So it's becoming more and more in favor of electric vehicles. Have, have we and come more up? and more people are, are attuned to environmental concerns as well. Have we come up with a way to deal with the batteries, though, like when they do no longer work? Oh, yeah, if they ever do, we have two or three companies in Canada quite capable of recycling them or perhaps reusing them in other purposes, stationary purposes. So don't anticipate that batteries will end up in the dump. They will be used for other battery purposes or uh, recycle into new batteries. And what about the trucking industry? Are they working towards electrification as well? Uh, it's a much bigger challenge, but yes, uh, Tesla's coming around with an electric uh, highway truck uh, very shortly, and I believe Volvo's looking at it as well. So it's, the trend is that every auto manufacturer is trying to meet all the needs out there. And of course, the early stages has been the private automobiles. Are they moving to SUV types, electrics, and pickups as well? And uh, yes, a couple of big trucks are being experimented with, especially delivery trucks around cities. Those are becoming available with electric as well. Right. That's And that, do you think, you said that we, you think we're at the tipping point now, or is it still a year or two away? Oh, the, for the trucks, probably a year or two away, just to your any significant numbers but the pilots and the tests and all that are extremely encouraging yeah okay and the infrastructure is coming because the one uh, things that i also hear from people when we talk about this is they go i want to know i can still take my road trip and have an electric vehicle oh yeah well because there's a lot of chargers and uh, it's all electronically available to the vehicle and so on so they know well there's no danger of running out of uh of electricity, and um, most people charge at home anyways if they, have, if they have a home or get in condos, that's being done as well, or in stratus. So, uh, yes, uh, the danger of running out of electricity is virtually remote at this point in time. People do cross-country trips, and now an EV is no problem. All right. Well, it's interesting. Al, thank you so much for your time. You're most welcome. That is Al Cormier, the founder of Electric Mobility Canada.